Good morning. If you guys will stand with us, we're going to sing. Um, my cheesy joke is, if you're not breathing, you don't have to sing this song. So, everybody else, you're not exempt. So, All right, let's sing it out together. Feel free to clap along if you'd like to. Sing it out. Everything I, everything I, everything I has breath. Praise the Lord. Everything I, everything I, everything I has breath. Praise the Lord. Praise you in the morning. Praise you in the evening. Praise you in the young when I'm old. Praise you when I'm laughing, praise you when I'm grieving, praise you every season of the soul. If we could see how much you're worth, your power, your might, your endless love, then surely we would never cease to praise you. Everything that, everything that. Everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Everything that, everything that, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Praise you in the heavens, join in with the angels, praise you forever and a day. Praise you on the earth now, join in the creation. Calling all the nations to your praise They could see how much your worth Your power, your might, your endless love Surely they would never cease to praise you Everything that, everything that, everything that has breath Praise the Lord Everything that, everything that, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Everything that, everything that, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Everything that, everything that, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Amen. Keep clapping on this one if you'd like to. Who is like you, lying in the land, seated on the throne? Mountains bow down, every ocean roars to the Lord of hosts. Praise that from the rising of the sun to the end of every day, praise Adonai. From the nations of the earth, all the angels and the saints sing praise. Who is like him, lion of the lamb, seated on the throne? Mountains bow down, every ocean roars to the Lord of hope. Rains at night, from the rising of the sun to the end of every day. Rains at night, all the nations of the earth, all the angels and the saints sing Praise 
foundations of the earth when angels and the saints sing praise and night from the rising of the sun to the end of every day praise and night all the nations of the earth angels and the saints sing praise sing praise Take a seat. If you'll bow your heads, we're going to spend a little time just in confessing, confession, confessing our sins before the Lord. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for the privilege of gathering to worship you today, and we, we praise you for how great and how awesome you are. And Lord, when we see how great and how holy you are, we are we're struck by how small we are. And Father, specifically, today as we look at your word, we'll be looking at the reality of how often we fake it, how we try to hide our sin from you, but you see it, and there is no hiding it, there is no faking it with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, teach our hearts to continue to be a confessing people um, who are real before you and real before each other, acknowledging our sin acknowledging the reality of, of how often we fail you and fail others, but, Lord, also rejoicing in you. In Psalm 130, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Father, you're feared not only because you're awesome and holy, but you're respected because of your graciousness and your forgiveness that you extend to us freely through your son, Jesus. And so we gather as a people that see you as great. We gather as a people that see ourselves as sinners. But we also gather as a people that see ourselves as your children by your grace, forgiven and set free to be your people. And so we continue to praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> confession and just to see ourselves as God does. This song uses some um, older words, but the heart of it is such an amazing thing that, that God shows us mercy even when we are broken and sinful. So sing these words with us.
trust is in the Lord and not in mine own merit. On him my soul shall rest his word, upholds my fainting spirit. His promise mercy is my fort, my comfort and my sweet support. I wait for it with patience. I wait for it with patience. Still trusteth in his might, and doubteth not nor feareth. Do the sorry of Israel see, ye of the Spirit born indeed, and wait till God appeareth. And wait till God appeareth. Sins and sore our woes, His grace much more abounded. His helping love no theme that knows, from most need is sounded. Our shepherd, good and true, is He who will at last is Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. This is the air I 
God's mercy, and we would seek Him out wholeheartedly and sing these words with us.
to be a people who are in love with you, God, from the inside out. Lord, that the deepest part of who we are will trust you and trust your word and show our love for you in obedience, God. Lord, help us to be a people who truly do love you and show your love to others. Help us to listen, God. Help us to take hold of your truth in this moment and to carry it with us through this week and through our lives. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. And uh, I see Merlene Spivey here. Is Gary here? Is he somewhere else? Gary and Merlene, I wanted to stand them up and embarrass them. I think maybe they split different services today. But Gary and Merlene, Merlene, if you can stand up. Gary, Gary, I don't think Gary's in the service. He's somewhere else. But they're having their 50th anniversary this week. So you give them a hand. Very exciting. Thank you guys for your faithfulness to each other. Uh, we're continuing our Matthew series. So you can open up to the book of Matthew if you have a Bible. Uh, if you don't and would like to follow along, we have some black Bibles under the chairs. And you can grab one of those. If you want as well, we're somewhere around 826, 27 in that Bible, but it's Matthew chapter 23. We started Matthew 23 last week, and it's really one big section, but I tried to break it up into two pieces. Um, And this is really a section where Jesus, in the most aggressive, direct way, condemns the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And uh, he confronts them. Last week, we called it follow the leader. He confronts how they're not the leaders that he wants Israel to follow. He says, don't follow these leaders. Don't follow them. And Jesus makes the case that he's the true leader that we should follow, that he's the point of the scriptures. And this week we're calling it faking it. 
Uh, and it's called often the woes to the Pharisees, the woes. And that's not a word we use a lot, except for maybe like with a horse these days. But, but woe, W-O-E, it was in one of the songs we sang, but it basically means condemnation. Uh, it means destruction is coming upon you. It means watch out, uh, you're undone, uh, you're, in, you're in a bad, bad place, okay? So Jesus is just directly saying to them, you're, you're in a mess, okay? Uh, this, you're in trouble. This is, this is a problem. And the theme is that they're faking it, that they're faking their spirituality. And, and that's an issue for religious people today as well, something we have to watch out for, right? That we wouldn't fake it, but that we would have an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ himself, not, not putting on religion externally, but walking with God in a real relationship of trust, a real relationship of, of hope and trust in him. So he says a lot of hard things this week. What I want to do is kind of skim through the main woes, the main verses here, and give you kind of a feel for the repetition. And so I'm just going to read the first few, few words of each condemnation, each woe that he speaks. So we're in Matthew 23. I'm going to start in, in uh, verse 13, but like I said, I'm going to kind of skip around a bit, and then we're going to get all the text as we work through the sermon. Starting in verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Hypocrites means what? Actor. It means someone putting on a mask, someone playing a part, someone faking it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you. Verse 29. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Very good. Y'all are starting to get the theme. There's a, a theme here. And then he concludes verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Let's pray. Father God, uh, there are hard words in this text today, and so we pray that your Holy Spirit would interfere and help us to hear what you have to say. Um, we are conditioned culturally to refuse uh, words of condemnation. We are culturally conditioned to not listen to hard words. And so, Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts uh, even now, um, that supernaturally you would open our ears and our minds and our hearts, and that you would allow us uh, to hear what you would say to us this morning from your word, that we would hear Jesus speaking not only to the religious leaders of his day, but we would hear Jesus speaking to us this morning. And Lord, we, we hope in that and we trust that you can do this by your power, by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about the whole idea of faking it, I think it's important to, uh, to, to distinguish between an authentic spirituality and one where you're just kind of going through the motions, right, where you're trying to look good on the outside. And I found a story in one of uh, Chuck Swindoll's books. Actually, I found it on the Internet, but it was referenced as out of Chuck Swindoll's book in Growing Deeper in the Christian Life. He was talking about someone who appeared to be this great hero. Uh, there was this guy that was on a uh, picnic, and he went to a fried chicken place, and he ordered some fried chicken, and him and his girlfriend went to a park. And when they got to the park, they opened up their bag, and they found a box of chicken, but they also found a box of money. They'd found $800 in one of the boxes. And they realized that this place must put their deposits in a chicken box, I guess, to hide it or something. And then accidentally, it got put in their bag. So he thinks, hey, I'll, I'll do the right thing. He goes back to the chicken place. He decides he's going to return the money. He's going to be that guy that does the right thing and takes the money back. He brings it back to the chicken place, and the manager is just gushing all over him and saying, that's so incredible. I can't believe what an honest man you are. There's, like, no honest people left in the world. There's nobody anymore that would do something like this, and this is so great. Can I get your name? I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to like get your name in the paper and let people know what has happened here, because this would be inspiring to others. And the guy said, no, I'd rather not give you uh, my name, because uh, this woman is not my wife. Um, he, he was trying to uh, deceive people. He was trying to keep a secret, while at the same time trying to be this hero that did the right thing. And so often that's, that's our life, right? We're this mix of, look at me, I'm a hero, but don't pay attention to this other stuff behind me, you know, these sins and these, you know, skeletons in my closet. I want to I hide those. I want to cover those. But look at these great things I've done. 
And Jesus is saying that's what the religious leaders of his day were doing. They were, they were faking it. They were putting on this religion, this spirituality, this looking good. They, they wanted to be heroes. They were doing things for show. But they didn't have a true walk with God. They weren't truly righteous. They weren't truly good. Just like all of us. We're, we can't do it on our own. We can't just put on some new behaviors. We can't just do a few good things and hope that that will fake people out and they won't see all the bad things in our hearts and all the bad things we've done before, right? Well, well this is what Jesus is challenging the Pharisees for. And, and as we go through, I've kind of lumped the different condemnations, the different woes into sections. And the first one, I think he's, he's condemning them for faking their leadership. You see, oftentimes we want to lead people, but we're leading them in the wrong direction. And so the first thing we see is that, he's, that they are faking their leadership. And we see this in the first couple of woes in verses 13 and 15. There's actually a textual problem. And so most modern translations leave out verse 14, uh, which they think got pulled out of one of the other Gospels and accidentally stuck in there in the King James Bible. But um, these two woes in 13 and 15, we have, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. They're leading them not to heaven, but away from heaven. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Because they're leading people not to Jesus, not to heaven, not to the kingdom, but they're leading people to religion. They're leading people to follow them in their fake, hypocritical, unreal spirituality. And we have to be so careful that we don't do that as well, right? That, that we don't go through these same motions. I, I got the concept here where he's saying you're slamming the door. It, it just reminded me of when you go to a business and it says, sorry, we're closed, right? Has that ever happened to you? You've ever been, you, you know, you want some yogurt and it's 10.05 and you go and they just shut the door, right? Sometimes they shut it at 9.55. That's really frustrating. But, you know, you go and, and sorry, we're closed, right? They've shut it down. You can't get in. You can bang all you want, scream, and all they're going to do is call the police, right? Um, they're, they're not going to let you in. The door is shut. And Jesus is saying, all this time he's been preaching, the kingdom is, is near, the kingdom is at hand. And John the Baptist, the kingdom is near, Here, the kingdom is at hand. Come on in, come on in. But the Pharisees are slamming the door in people's faces. He's saying, you're shutting the kingdom in people's faces. Even when you do win a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are, because you're not leading them to the answer. You're not leading them to Jesus. You're leading them to religion. You're leading them to, to your club. You're leading them to your society instead of the, the true door, the, the pathway into spirituality, which is Jesus himself. Again and again throughout the Gospels, in Matthew we've seen it, and John you see it a lot, Jesus says he's the gate. He's the door into the kingdom. He's the way we get in. But the Pharisees are like, no, don't pay attention to him. You've you got to do it the way we do it. You've got to follow our rules. You've got to be like us. You've got to follow our ways. You've got to focus on these things. And they end up slamming the door in people's faces. Instead of giving them a true spirituality, they give them this, this fake spirituality. Uh, I think this was, this was previewed for us in uh, Matthew 5. We, we kind of saw in the, in the beginning, in the very first teaching that we get from Jesus in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, we got that concept from Jesus that it's not about having it all together. It's not about being a follower of the right person and having your stuff together and looking right on the outside. It's not about faking it, but it's about actually coming to the end of yourself, right? It's about coming to the end of your rope. And we saw that you can, uh, if you look, or you can write this down to look at it later, Matthew 5, 3 and 5, 4 in the Beatitudes. It said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the Pharisees were saying, blessed are those who have it all together. Blessed are those who follow us. Blessed are those who look right on the outside. But Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are mourning, who are grieving, who lament, who weep and wail because they don't have it together, who say, we need someone to intervene. We need some help from the outside because we can't do this. Jesus says, that's, that's how you get into the kingdom. That's the door into the kingdom. Is coming to the end of yourself. In 5.4 he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Are you celebrating yourself? Or are you mourning yourself and celebrating a God that's, that's gracious, that's forgiving, that opens the door to you although you don't deserve it? That's my question for us this morning. Because if we're celebrating ourself, if, if we think 
that we want our neighbors to be like us, if we want our neighbors to follow us because we know the right way and we've got it all figured out, chances are we're not leading them to Jesus, we're leading them to hell. That's what he says. He says, when, when you get people to follow you and your religion, you're leading them the wrong direction. People need to be led to Jesus, not to religion. We don't need any more religion. We all know what to do, right? I mean, we all know the right things we should be doing. I mean, if I were to interview every person in here, you could give me a list of two or three good things you're doing in your life, and then you could go, well, yeah, there are these two or three ways that I'm, I'm messing it up pretty big. We all know that we can't do it on our own. We need someone else to do it for us, to achieve righteousness in our place, and that's what the cross is all about. That's what Jesus was all about, being the true man, the true Israel, the true righteous person that lived like we should live and then gave himself as an innocent sacrifice to die the death that we deserve. So they're not only faking their leadership, leading people in the wrong direction, but they're also faking knowledge. We talked about this a lot last week, this whole idea, or two weeks ago, about like missing the point, you know, getting lost in the weeds and not focusing on the main idea of Jesus and who he is and walking right up the middle of the Bible, you know, the main idea of the Bible. We talked about how the Bible really is clear in the important things. We're sinners. We need God's help. It's a pretty simple message, but a lot of times we we don't want to focus on that, and we want to kind of get detoured into the little things and get sidetracked, and that's what the Pharisees did so often. Let's read verses 16 through 24. Verses 16 through 24, we see where where they get sidetracked in the wrong things. They start getting into these theological debates and arguments instead of really focusing on the truth. He says in verse 16, "'Woe to you blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing.'" But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. It's all about God. By the one who dwells in it. In it, And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it, by God himself. They're, they're getting distracted. They're getting sidetracked. James echoes this stuff uh, in James 5.12 where James says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. James makes it clear. Above, above everything else that James has talked about throughout the book, we, we saw when we studied James as a church that, that James is saying, uh, be real. Don't, don't have this fake outside and then be dead on the inside, just like Jesus is saying here. Above all else, be truthful. Don't swear. And when they say don't swear, they're not saying uh, oaths and formal senses are always wrong all the time, right? He, he's talking specifically about how they would come up with certain kinds of swearing that they really had to be bound by, and then other oaths weren't as important. So you could break those. That, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you, you fools, you blind guides, you don't... You don't see the point is truthfulness. The point is not what you can get away with and what you can't get away with, but the point is tell the truth. Be truthful. And this is what Jesus had already said in Matthew 5 as well. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else beyond this is from the evil one. Then we we see the other ideas, the other place where they fake knowledge, where they get off track in in verse 23. And this one's interesting because some people see this whole set of, of woes and condemnations as a chiasm, which is basically... Uh, just a literary structure, it means the most important piece is in the middle, okay? So a lot of people see this as this most important one, the, the middle of the seven woes, is verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisee, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. He's saying you've you've got your priorities all mixed up. A a gnat was an unclean uh, animal, right? They weren't supposed to eat certain kinds of bugs, and that was one of those. And he says, you're swallowing a camel. You're focused on gnats, these tiny things, right? Gnats are about this big, uh, and you're swallowing a camel. I don't know if you can see that picture. That's a camel, and camels are disgusting. You wouldn't want to eat one, okay? (laughs) You wouldn't want to swallow one. You wouldn't want to eat one. And he's saying you're, you're all worried about this unclean thing that's this big, and in, in the end, you're swallowing the, the big unclean thing. You're swallowing something much 
worse. And he's saying that's how you've gotten your priorities out of order and your confused knowledge of the scriptures. You're, you're missing the point. You're faking knowledge of the scriptures because you're, you're saying the scriptures are all about these things, the minutiae, when the scriptures are about these central ideas of God's holiness and who he is and how far we, we fall short of that holiness, but that God makes a way, that he is gracious, that he forgives us. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of, of tithing. Just make a little excursus, a little, little sidebar here on, on tithing, because it's not something we talk a lot about in this church. And part of the reason we don't talk about it a lot um, is because it's abused so much. Tithing just means, literally, it's giving a tenth. That's where the, the word comes from, the tithe. And you see this throughout the scriptures. You see even starting with Abraham, he gave a, a tenth to this priest. So even before the old covenant was instituted, tithing was happening. So a lot of people would argue, therefore, that tithing is still important, you know, even after the Old Covenant today and the New Covenant. Um, but, but it's abused so often that we don't, we don't push it a lot here. We don't, we don't push giving financially to the church a lot here. We have a box in the back where you can give, and we do encourage people, if, if you consider this your home, uh, to give. But we don't push it because so many people abuse it, because so many people, you know, either say God is like holding a stick, and if you don't give a certain amount, he's going to whack you, right? I mean, you've probably grown up in churches like that. Or there's the, the opposite of that, where it's more positive, but it's like the vending machine God. And it's if you give the right amount, then God's going to shake his vending machine and all these blessings are going to fall out on you, right? And, and there are, I mean, there are verses to, to back that up in a sense. I mean, God does say he will he'll pour out blessings as we give and that we're blessed, you know, when we give and, and we're, it's given back to us and there's blessing there. And, and that's, that's true. But, but the motivation then becomes wrong. You know, the preacher preaches every week on give and you'll be given to and you know, give this amount and then you'll be blessed back. And, and it, again, it becomes like a vending machine. And, and we see God in the wrong way. Um, I, I want to talk through a couple of verses. One is in 1 Corinthians 9. There, there's two key passages on, on giving in the New Testament. A couple of key principles we have on giving in the New Testament. One is in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul makes it real clear that it's biblical to, to pay teachers of the word and ministers of the gospel um, for their work, to support them so that they can do their ministry. And he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, in 9 and 10, uh, he talks about this Old Testament quote from the, uh, he says, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain. Saying basically that just means uh, let the ox eat some of what he's working on. You know? and, and that, so there's this concept that we have in today's world where we, we pay to support missionaries and ministers of the gospel and things like Young Life and, and me as, as the, the teacher of the word here at the church and, and other staff here. So, so there's this principle in the New Testament that is, that is affirmed just like in the Old Covenant, where they would support those who ministered God's word to people. And that, that that's right and good and healthy. Um, it says in verse 14, those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And then in verse 3, or not in verse 3, in, in uh, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, uh, we have this other principle that it shouldn't be under compulsion. That we, wouldn't, that we shouldn't be forced to give, but that it should be an overflow from our heart. That we should see God as generous to us, and that's why we give. And see, we, and that's why I'm saying how we turn it around with the vending machine, God. We go, well, God will be generous if I give, so I'll give in hopes that God will be generous. Instead of a gospel-centered type of giving where we say, God has given me everything. I, I have an inheritance of everything in the world, so of course I'm going to share. Of course I'm going to give. Of course I'm going to help others. Of course I'm going to help the poor. Of course I'm going to give to support the church. Of course I'm going to support some missionaries. Of course I will give. And that's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 9, that it should be from the heart. In verse 7, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Saying it, it should be cheerful. You should be excited about it, and it should be something that you want to do. So, so if you're not there, you should pray that God would change your heart so that you would want to give. Not, not go, okay, I'm going to start giving so that I can shake the vending machine and get some blessings out of God. But, but pray that you would see God as a generous God that has blessed you so much and you, and you want to therefore give to others. Well, there's, there's different ways we can apply these things, right? So, so we've got the idea of giving. There, there still is giving and we see Jesus saying, you know, don't not tithe to focus on justice and mercy and faithfulness, but don't skip the big things. Don't skip the big things. So he's not condemning the Pharisees for tithing. Um, he is affirming that's a good idea. Yeah, giving what you want is, is a good idea. But what we do is we, we focus on these measurable things. I would say the Pharisees' application is 
Uh, tithing is what really matters because it's measurable, right? Because it's something I can check off on the list. I can do it and then think I'm impressing God or impressing other people. And I can base my spirituality, therefore, on these kinds of measurable things. So I'm going to tithe, but I'm not really going to love people. I'm not going to really be about mercy or faithfulness. As it talks about in Micah 6 eight, to love justice and to do mercy and walk humbly with our God. Jesus says, you're not doing that, but you're doing these side issues, these little things. And again, Jesus says, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do the little things. Those are great, but, but get your priorities straight. Get your priorities right. And so we don't want to go to the other side of the legalist interpretation and go, oh, well, see, Jesus, and, you know, Jesus affirms tithing, so therefore tithing. It's, it's all about tithing. This is a verse to affirm tithing, and that's where a lot of people go. No, this is, this is a verse that says, get your priorities together. Be about the main things. Love God. Love other people. Don't skip justice and mercy and faithfulness in order to do these other little religious things that people say are important, that people can see, that people might be impressed by. Make sure you have a heart that's right before God. I mean, one of the true measures, one of the most important measures, I think, of, of our spiritual life in the New Testament is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. That's a lot harder to, to measure, isn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness... Are, those things are harder to measure. We can measure out on a uh, spreadsheet our giving. But it's a lot harder to measure. Are we loving people? Are we filled with joy? Are we blessing others? So like I said, the, the gospel-centered focus on giving is that it would be this overflow from our heart, that we would give to others out of, out of a desire to bless them. The other thing I want to look, look at one more time, too, is just the whole idea of oaths. Again, I just want to stress this. The, the Pharisees, their, their application on oaths is, well, certain oaths are more important than others. And so they tried to slice and dice God's word and you know, their understanding of the temple and the gold is more sacred than this. You know, and they had a, all these rules and Jesus was saying, don't go there. Don't even do that. Now, a legalistic interpretation of that can be where then we say we're therefore not allowed to ever make any promises or any oaths under any circumstances, Right? And a lot of uh, Christian traditions do that. And I, I don't want to tear them down, but I think that's, a, again, a misreading of the text. That's a legalistic interpretation where we try to just grab onto this verse and then make it into a rule, and therefore we can't take oaths in court, and we can't uh, be a part of promise keepers because they make promises and say they're going to keep this list of things. You know, and we, we make all these rules up. And, and he's saying, no, the, the point is the way the Pharisees used oaths as an excuse to get out of telling the truth. Again and again, the stream that runs through all these different verses about it in Matthew 5 and in James 5 and here in, in Matthew 23, the, the, the string that holds them all together is be truthful. That is the main point. Be truthful people. Be real. Don't fake it any longer, but be real. Well, the last section is, is the idea of purity. Purity, holiness, cleanness. He's saying they fake it once again. They fake their purity. They're not really pure, but they fake it. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. And this is what we talk about, about a, a gospel-centered or a Christ-centered application of what God has told us to do. It has to start from the inside and work its way outside. Okay? You have to get your heart right before God. You have to realize that you're a sinner and you've messed it up and you have to repent and trust in Him to make things right by His grace. And after that heart transformation takes place, then you can approach the law not as someone who thinks they can keep it perfectly and get everything right and impress God, but someone who realizes that Jesus kept it for you. So then there's no condemnation when you come to the law and it's something you can interact with and go, okay, my father says this is a good idea, so I'm going to try this. And then I might stumble and fall, and, and I'll still need grace, but the grace is there, and he'll continue to extend it to me. And I can pick myself back up and, and try again. So it works itself out from the inside out, not from the outside in. I grabbed a, a picture of a coffee cup here. How many of you would want to go to a coffee bar where they spend a lot of time sanitizing the saucers, but they never sanitize the cup? Huh? You know, they focused on the outside, and the saucer was real clean. They might even shine the outside of the cup, but they would just leave the grounds on the inside of the cup and keep reusing them. Would you like that? Would that be good? No, that would be disgusting. And that, and that is Jesus' whole point here, that the Pharisees, that this external religion, this faking of purity, faking of holiness before God, it, it is a way of cleaning up the outside but not really dealing with our heart issues on the inside. And he's saying it's still dirty. The cup 
is still dirty. But if we deal directly with Jesus and face up to the reality of, of our uncleanness, of our lack of purity, and that he, by grace, gives us transformation, gives us a new heart, then we can begin to be clean. Then it begins to spring up as, as living water springing up from within us. Like he says in John 7, it starts to overflow and, and work its way out. You know, We start to be clean on the inside, and then we actually start to live differently on the outside. There starts to become a real spiritual transformation. The miracle of new life actually begins to take place as we start to live differently, as we start to actually do stuff, and we're like, wow, I, can't believe, I just did a nice thing. Where did that come from? You know, I mean, it just starts to, starts to surprise you, and you start to live out those fruit in the Spirit that he talks about of, of love and joy and, and peace begins to overtake our lives. The other one he talks about, that this faking purity is, is the whitewashed tombs. Skip ahead here. There we go. Whitewashed tombs in verse 27. What do you teach the law and Pharisees? You hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So because dead bones and dead bodies were unclean, kind of like certain animals they weren't supposed to eat were unclean, uh, they weren't supposed to touch them. They didn't want to get near dead bones, and so they would whitewash the tombs. And he's talking about it. it makes them look beautiful, but really the idea was more like those the orange safety tape, you know, like when I used to work construction, we were digging a ditch, we'd have to put orange tape, you know, around a ditch so that nobody fell in. And that was kind of the idea of the whitewashed tombs. They're like bright white color here in this dirty world helps to warn people. And they're like, okay, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to touch these unclean dead bones. So it was a warning. And, th and they were focusing on the outside. And he's saying, but that's what your life is like. You're just focused on the outside when the inside is still dead. The inside is still unclean. And throughout the whole Old Testament, there are all these purity laws, all these ceremonial laws, which are really to lead us to, to realize we're unclean and we need to be made clean. But the Jews had turned them into you know, rules to obey, again, to try to impress God, to try to fake out other people, to try to appear as if they were clean. Instead of seeing that these were lessons to show them, the main point of the whole Bible, that God is clean and they're not. And they need God to clean them up. They need God to transform them. And so again, they, they miss the point and they're faking their purity before God. They're trying to look pure on the outside when they're still unclean on the inside. And so often we do that as well. So often we don't deal with, with what's inside of us. Um, and I want to challenge you guys that, that you have to deal with the heart. And I know there's a lot of you that, that come here, and, and we are, we're glad you're here, but a lot of you, you come here, a lot of us come here thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my life back on track, right? I'm going to do the religion thing. I'm going to go to a church, and I heard that church was cool because I had pink carpet. And, you know, so you show up, and, and you're here thinking that, that you'll kind of get yourself back together, right? And, and I want to tell you, that's, that's not how it works. You've got to deal with what's on the inside. Attendance alone doesn't do it. Hopefully, the attendance, though, leads you to hear this message, to hear this reality that you've got to deal with what's on the inside. You've got to deal with what's on the inside. You can't fake it. You can't go, oh, yeah, I go to this church, or oh, yeah, I give this much, or oh, yeah, I've got this Christian coffee cup, or, you know, whatever it may be. These, these weird external things that we do to look Christian or to look religious, you've got to deal with the heart. And the only way to deal with the heart is by coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus I'm unclean. I don't have it together. I, I can't live right. I've read all the books on how to clean up my life, and, and I can't pull them off. I need your help. I need you to transform me from the inside out. If you come to him and ask for him to intervene, to come into your life, then you're no longer faking it, but you're going to begin to have an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ himself. You're entering into a real relationship. And I want to warn you, he's not going to leave you alone. Then you're going to, your heart's going to begin to be tugged on in, in different ways that maybe you're not ready for. But he'll begin renewing you from the inside out. Showing you that you can't do it on your own. You can't rely on your flesh, your self, your strength, your power, your skill, your relationships. You can't rely on those things, those externals. But you have to trust in him. And, and it's an everyday life of continuing to get up every day and going, again, I can't do it, God, unless you fill me from the inside out with your Holy Spirit. 
unless I breathe in you and unless I'm overtaken by you and led by you and ruled by you in my life, Lord, I can't do it. And that's what it means to walk in authentic spirituality instead of to walk in religion where you're faking it, where you're trying to look right on the outside knowing that you're still dead on the inside. Well, as we conclude, I wanted to just finish up with these last uh, few verses. Uh, look at verse 33 through 39. And there's a strange little textual thing in here about, I'm going to read over about Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Those of you that are like, avid Bible students and caught the weirdness in the text, I'd love to talk to you after it, but I'm just going to skip over that for now. Um, it's kind of a, just a weird comment there in the text. Uh, but let's, let's kind of read through it all together, though, and try to focus on what's the, uh, what's the main point here. In verse 33, he says, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape from being condemned to hell? Do you remember uh, what the snake is, the imagery of, of the Bible? I mean, going back all the way to Genesis 3, anybody remember who, who the snake characterizes? You know, the snake was the serpent, the one in the garden that first lied to Adam and Eve, the deceiver that said, God doesn't have your best interest in mind. Really, it'd be better for you if you became your own gods and did your own thing. Don't trust God. Trust yourself. Trust your flesh. Trust your own wisdom. And, and here he's saying, you Pharisees, you religious people, you're trying to fake it and be religious on the outside without cleaning up what's on the inside, you're, you're sons of that serpent. You're sons of that snake. Verse 34, Therefore I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. We see this unfolding not just with Jesus but with all the other apostles in the book of Acts, right? Verse 35, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So he's starting with the first murder in the Bible, Abel, and he's going all the way to the last murder in the Old Testament Bible. Second Chronicles would have been the last book in, in their order of Old Testament books. So he's saying kind of from A to Z, all the murders that ever happened in the Bible, all that guilt is falling now on you. Verse 36, I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as we look at chapter 24 in a couple of weeks, in two weeks, and then again in three weeks, we'll understand more what he's talking about. Your house is left desolate. This condemnation is going to have a, a fuller effect in, in their culture and with the temple and with Jerusalem and the condemnation of Jerusalem as a city. But I think it's important that we get the heart of Jesus here. That we get the heart of Jesus here where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you wouldn't have it. But you wouldn't have it. And this is a warning to us today. Jesus says, how I long to gather you under my wings. He is a God that wants to provide protection and safety and salvation to us. And we've got to stop believing the lie of the serpent that says, don't trust him. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. You can do it yourself. I'm, I'm here as his herald, his proclaimer of the truth to say it's not true. To say only in Jesus can we find security. Only in Jesus will you find the salvation that you're looking for. Not in yourself, not in your own strength, your own flesh, your own abilities. But come to him and he will gather you in. He will give you his protection. And he will set you free to actually make an impact on this world, to have a life that means something. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray to you because we believe that you're the one can help us. Lord, I know there are, there are people here that, that need for the first time to, to confirm with you and to say, yes, I trust you. I see I've been trusting in myself. I see I've been trusting in my own ability to be religious or to do things and clean things up on the outside. But Lord, now I recognize that I need you, that you lived the perfect life I should have lived, and that I can accept that by faith, accept your righteousness as a gift. And that you died the death that I deserve to die. And you paid the price for me. And I can accept that by faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray for those that need to make that decision. You would give them the boldness to just tell you that right now. 
in prayer to speak to you in their own hearts and say, God, thank you for giving yourself for us, that they would come to faith and to a new life in you, a life that works itself out from, from the inside out and, and not from the outside in. And Lord, I pray that those would also be bold and, and share that with others, maybe with someone that invited them to church or, or maybe with a friend that they're already in a small group with or, or with me or one of the other leaders at the church. But I pray, Lord, that we would become a people that, that believe it's, it's okay to be honest about who we are. We don't have to fake it anymore. That we can be real because you are a gracious God. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Phil, let's stand with us as we sing this last song. As Dave said, um, it's our prayer that we will be a people that, um, that truly love our God and share his love with others and share this story. Um, so we, that we will ask for the nations that God will bring them to himself uh, and, and use us in doing that. So let's sing these words together. Your 